0: Oh, Smith and this is more than one lesson episode one oh six. I want to say special thanks to Jarrett Lamaster for being on the show last week. Uh, a lot of good stuff uh, talked about there, um, and also wanted to congratulate him uh, on the success of Turnaround Jake. It apparently did very well. Uh, of course, it was it was playing only at one theater, but apparently it set a record for that specific theater as far as how much money it brought in. So, uh, congratulations to him, and hopefully. Uh, that means that the film will go wide and you guys will have the opportunity to see it. So, okay, real quick. uh, Josh, once again, not here, still working, uh, but we do have uh, another guest host, this time uh, our old friend. I mean, I get emails, I'm going to say every day, saying, when are you going to bring back Reed Lackey? Now, admittedly... Those are from Reed But you know what Uh, It's still a good question And the answer is right now He's in studio with me It's Reed Lackey Reed, how you doing?
1: I'm doing all right. So you mean you recognized that Just because I was using different
0: email addresses That they were all me Well you do have a very specific writing style And you really should stop signing off Reed Lackey Oh man, I knew that was going to get me one day (laughs) (laughs) Oh jeez But, yeah, uh, the last time you were on, it's been, uh, I would say, almost a year, but not really. It's probably been about uh, eight or nine months. Uh, The last time you were on, we were talking about The Exorcist, your favorite film of all time. Still my favorite
1: film of all time. Still uh, gets puzzled glances from all of my church friends.
0: Well, they're dumb. Is that that the direction we were headed? Usually what I tell them. (laughs) You know, uh, you're very stupid. Okay. Yeah. Good call. Good call. Yeah. Um, That attitude always works out. It does. No matter who you're talking to,
1: it does. You know, I make a lot of friends with that exact comment. Who? Hey, what's your name? You look very stupid.
0: Yeah, and And then you know, perhaps they have uh, father issues, and they just all they would then want is your approval, and so Mm -hmm. they'll just uh, they'll just follow you around. See how I worked that there, you know? But then
1: I refuse to give it to them until they take out the trash.
0: It's great. Yeah, it works out very well for me. Um. So okay, here's a quick question. Uh, So you say. Uh, the Exorcist remains your favorite film of all time. What do you think the likelihood is of something replacing it?
1: Well, uh, that okay. So it's interesting you ask that because I have given that some thought. I think the likelihood of Exorcist being unseated as my favorite um, is very low. Mm-hmm. Um, the the possibility that something will replace it in the number one slot. Um, it's been the number one slot now for 15 years plus running, so it's so it's unlikely. However, uh, I made a top ten list, I think either uh, a year or two ago. And I have often thought that it's like, you know what, now that I've built that top 10 list that I'm looking at it, there's things even in that that might reshuffle were I to make one right now. So who knows? I mean, it's yeah. possible that The Exorcist could get unseated. There's a lot of films uh, that I love and I'm seeing new ones all the time that resonate strongly with me. So, so who knows? But it has been my favorite for at least 15 plus years running. So
0: Yeah, I ask that as somebody who recently, like in the last year and a half, changed up his top 10 including his number one Uh, citizen kane was my number one Mm. for uh probably around 15 years i think i first saw it in 1997 uh and it blew my mind as of course it always will um it is a wonderful film i don't mean to say i don't mean to speak ill of it simply because it dropped to my second favorite (laughs) film of all time uh but i think some of it is is is. uh Uh, I think I changed uh, as Hmm. a person and as a film watcher. And uh, as I think I've said uh, when Josh and I went through our our top tens, uh, it was interesting to go back and look at the various top hundred lists that I've made. And you see, um, I think you see Nashville show up at number 30 in 2004. Then it jumps number 10 in 2007. And then seven and then number four. And then number one, it's really neat to just see the progression of this movie just yeah. go up and up and up until finally it got to this point where I thought, I think this it might be who I am now. But again, I haven't seen Citizen Kane in a while. Mm-hmm. If I were to watch it, by and by the way, I have it on Blu-ray and I haven't watched it on Blu-ray. I bet it is as gorgeous an experience as you will ever have. Uh, and it's entirely possible that the minute I see it, I will go s- running back to it. Like a first wife, yeah, or something like that.
1: <laughs> it's it's funny how that happens because I I think from time to time about um, even the films that I love and can quote, I get distanced from them, and then I start to ask myself that very question: like, do I do I really love that one as much as I do? I know I love it, but yeah. do I really love it like top ten? Like, is it really up there? Yeah. And I was have even have I just
0: taken this for granted for so long that it's just kind of become a thing that I just assume. Right. Yeah. Right. And
1: uh, so yeah, I, I'm. I think just because I'm I don't know what it says about my uh, anal retentiveness or my nerdiness, but the but I'm considering doing uh, like a revamp of my top, you know, 10 to 50 every couple of years. Just just for curiosity's sake, if nothing else, like, okay, what would I rank if I started from scratch and just went through all of my my five star ratings on Netflix? And, okay, these are the films that I would say I loved. How high are they in general?
0: And I don't know what I would wind up. It is interesting to go back and looking through, because, okay, all right. I may or may not do posts about this on More Than One Lesson or Battleship Pretension, uh, probably More Than One Lesson, just because that's more. Uh, that site is more an, a direct extension of me, uh, and I feel like I'm not wasting everybody's time, although I am, but just fewer people. Um, recently, I went through and made a list... Of my 100 favorite performances, uh, sorry, leading performances by a male, I am currently working on the female one and then I'll probably do supporting and supporting. Now that's something I did, I'm going to say 12 to 13 years ago while I was in college and it was a lot of fun. I enjoy ranking things, even though the rankings are mostly arbitrary or at least anything below, I'd say 20, um, is probably pretty arbitrary, but that top 10 is, that's probably going to be pretty consistent throughout. Just, yeah. And so as a result of making this, this list, um, I went through those top hundred movies lists that I was talking about to just kind of jog my memory my memory of anything I might be forgetting. And much to my surprise, there's probably been a consistent 50 to 60 movies on my top hundred list for the last 12 years. Mm. Um, they get moved around a little bit. Some things drop off, some things come in, but for the most part, like if you look at my top 20, I mean, they're mostly the same. Yeah. Um, Some things fall out of the top 10 and then maybe a few years later they'll come back come screaming back in and it's very strange, but... uh, and when I, when I think about that, part of me thinks, wow, have I really not matured as a film lover that, uh, <laughs> that uh, Chinatown is still hanging on there as, as much as it does? Although I believe that one actually fell out of my top ten. But who knows? Next time... Maybe it'll be right back in there. Maybe it'll be number two. And I mean, who, who knows? Yeah. Maybe you know, I'll, maybe I'll really turn on citizen King
1: <laughs> and just hate it. Cause okay. So you notice when you mentioned the thing about making your list of top hundred favorite supporting roles by a male, notice how I didn't laugh mm. uh, because I am a huge fan of, top 100 lists, lists yeah. in general. i tell you who will laugh is my wife when she listens to this because okay. she, yeah, I, I know that it's only for her affection for me that she does not make more fun of me than she does about all of the lists that I've made, including favorite song, 100 favorite songs, 100 favorite performances by Bob Dylan, 100, you know, I, wow. I,
0: I could go. I on, did on. years ago rank my top 100 Tom Waits songs. Now, If I were to do top 100 songs of all time, that might be a little rough for me because Mm. then you have all the different genres, all the different musicians within that genre, all their albums, and then every song on that album. That might be... Now, I realize I just said that having talked about all different genres of film throughout the last several hundred years. Sorry. Sorry. The last hundred years. Yeah. And then every different performance within that. But leading is a little bit easier because there's usually only one or two lead performances per film. I'd agree with that. So supporting is going to be rough because supporting can be anything from William Hurt in a history of violence, eight minutes long. Exactly. To... Edward G. Robinson in uh, Double Indemnity. Yeah, he's there is, throughout
1: most of the film. Yeah,
0: so it can be it's going to be a little little rough. Yeah, how I how I went about the I song. say rough. I'm going to enjoy every minute of it.
1: Oh yeah, that, this <laughs> this is the fun part of what we did. Like for for me with the song one, what I did was I just went through my iPod mm-hmm. and ranked all of my songs, which I'm actually still in the process of, but ranked all my songs, and then uh, I build my favorite song list from the ones that I've made five stars and then Mm. that's that's how i siphon it down so uh yeah i I, i'm i'm kind of coming into my own where i'm embracing how ridiculously nerdy um or geeky or however you would classify it that is but it makes me happy to involve myself in a project of that sort of examination here's the thing
0: i don't collect stamps i don't collect coins i collect i collect riddler paraphernalia and that's it. And I collect DVDs, but even that, I don't do it like I used to. These days, it's mostly a function of gifts that I receive for sure Christmas and my birthday and that kind of thing. Um, I don't follow sports statistics, but I know people who just go insane with that kind of thing. Sure, yeah. And they're not made to feel silly. Uh, and I don't think it's silly, especially now – when I take so much pleasure in this stuff that is mostly inconsequential. Mm -hmm. And I think what I have started to embrace, especially with my top hundred list is just, it winds up being a little snapshot of who I was at the time, rather Uh, than speaking definitively and saying, this is the top, the top hundred best. It's like, well, I haven't seen all of them.
1: Mm -hmm. I haven't
0: seen every movie ever made, so I can't speak about best. This is just my, hundred favorite and i'm not being disloyal to a movie if it drops out right maybe i'll watch like i said with citizen kane maybe i'll watch it again and it'll sh- and it'll jump right back up to number one who's to say but right now in my life at the moment robert altman's nashville is my number one and uh so it's uh it's a lot of fun uh yeah. listeners uh try, try doing it for yourself it winds up being more fun for some people than you would ever think <laughs> um and in, and w- uh, watch read, sit back and watch this transition uh, as I was making my list of top hundred lead performances by a man, uh, when I first did it years ago, there was a performance that was my number one. It has also dropped to number two. Hmm. Uh, my number one now, strangely enough, is Harry Dean Stanton in Paris, Texas.
1: Interesting. A film I've never seen, but I want oh, to see. Oh, you'd yeah. love it.
0: I, yeah. You would You would flip over it. Uh, so what was my number one and has since dropped to number two is, of course, Robert Duvall and the Apostle. Mm. Which is like, what we're talking about today. I like how you
1: did that. That yeah. was that was masterful podcasting right there. Well,
0: I, I'm just saying you don't get five podcast nominations for nothing. One so, of these days
1: they're going to wake up and give you that win. That I'm is not you. true. <laughs> that is not true. Well, okay. okay.
0: They don't give it to you. You have to earn it through uh, engaging your podcast listeners and not enough people listen to this. And that is okay. Labor of love. That's how I look at that, it. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Thanks, buddy. Um, so, Okay little bit of a uh, little bit of backstory here. So when I emailed, when I found out that Josh wasn't going to be here, I, I uh, emailed Reed to see if he could fill in for him. And then I put together, I have sort of this, uh, this constant running list of movies that, uh, we can talk about and, uh, Reed decided to sidestep that. And, uh, And it worked out okay, because as it happens, the movie he suggested is one that had sort of been on a side list for a long time, but I never quite got around to it. And you said, well, can we talk about Robert Duvall's The Apostle? Hmm. And that's something that, along with a handful of other movies like... Uh, the Last Temptation of Christ, A Man for All Seasons, movies that don't really fit our format because they're a little bit older, yeah. uh, and I, but I also don't want to relegate them to simple uh, companion film status, so they're going to get their own episode. Uh, so yeah, I was excited when you talked about it because I also remember it being one of your top ten, correct?
1: Yeah, It, it this this last go-around, it hit number seven. Number and seven. It's funny because in sort of refreshing myself, uh, I didn't get a chance to have a full reviewing of it before recording this but um in just familiarizing myself again i read a little bit of the i have a copy of the screenplay i read Mm. a little bit of that listened to a little bit of the commentary on the dvd and watched a couple of scenes and my first thought was i I think this should be higher in my list than seven Mm. um and of course i looked back at my list and i'm like oh man i don't know but i uh, yeah to what we were talking about earlier it's in this particular ranking at this particular season in time, it hits seven, but it's still top 10. Yeah, I, absolutely. I adore it. There are times when it probably would have ranked top five, maybe even top three. Um, when I first saw it, I was absolutely in love with what he did in there's a number of things that I'm sure we'll talk about. But I feel like if you if you want to see if you're at all curious about an authentic um true to life portrayal of what the sort of Pentecostal charismatic tradition is, I would without hesitation point you to that film because it is a, uh, an eerily accurate snapshot of what that culture and climate is like.
0: Yeah. It's, there's so much stuff to talk about as far as the execution of the film. Um, I will say first off, uh, for those that, that don't already know, uh, I mentioned Robert Duvall's performance, which was nominated for an Oscar should have won, but whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, they got to give Jack Nicholson an Oscar for something. (laughs) Was that as good as it gets? Was that the year that he got? Yes. Wow. And here's the thing: Jack Nicholson is very good, and as good as it gets.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But
0: considering the actor we know him to be, the actor from About Schmidt and The Pledge and any number of other films, absolutely. They. It's it's very odd that they. uh, He was given three. He's been given three Oscars. Mm-hmm. Each one for a distinctly Nicholson-like performance. That is fascinating. I like not Hoffa, that. not Ironweed, mm-hmm. not uh, not even Five Easy Pieces, which kind of is in between. Not Easy Rider. It's One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Uh, terms of Endearment. As good as it gets. It's yeah. It's very strange the way that worked out, but whatever. Um, so I feel like of the five nominated best actor performances, his was my least favorite. It's still a lot of fun to watch as Nicholson always is. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so in talking about Robert Duvall's performance, it should also be stated that he also produced, wrote and directed the apostle. This he funded was, it
1: too. What was that? He funded it too. Oh, absolutely. all his own money.
0: Yeah. He'd been, I mean, he'd been raising money for that for like 20 years. He'd yeah. been wanting to make it for a long time. Uh, and so, I mean, this, this could not be more of Robert Duvall's movie. Yeah. More so than almost any other movie I know of with the possible exception of like a John Cassavetes who would write, direct and produce and fund his own movies and often act in them as well. Yeah. Um, and when, and if he wasn't acting in them, his wife often was and his friends and that kind of thing. So, uh, so it really is, uh, an kind of the spirit of independent film. I mean, it's really a one man band kind of thing. So, uh, Anything, if there's a thing you like in The Apostle, it's a function of Robert Duvall, even if it's somebody else's performance, because he also cast it. He yeah. also directed that person. Um, and he was probably acting uh, uh, off of them and that sort of thing. So right. uh, So, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the choices that Robert Duvall made. And what I will say is that, uh, so I first saw this when I was 15. It was 97. That's when the film came out. Yeah. And... I was I was still kind of a fledgling movie watcher. 97 is when I started... 96 is when I started uh, really s- taking movies seriously and going back and watching older films. Mm. 97 is when I started recognizing, oh, there are good movies being made now that I can go see in the theater now. Yeah. 97 was L.A. Confidential. It was Wag the Dog. It oh, wow. was uh, The Apostle. It was Boogie Nights. It was... Um, a movie called Yuli's Gold, another Best Actor nominee. Peter Fonda? Peter Fonda. Wow. That, that could have won, actually. He was really good in that. Hmm. Um, and and uh, Good Will Hunting was that year. It was just, There was a lot of good stuff yeah. in 97. Uh, so it turned out to be a very good year to really get into what movies are being made now. Hmm. Sweet Hereafter is 97. Wow. Wow. Um, and uh, and I believe, uh, I don't have my list in front of me, but I believe Ian Holm in uh, Sweet Hereafter is in my top 10 as well. But I'm, hmm. I'm not sure if that's true. So um, anyway, uh, so I, I don't even really remember what prompted me to see it. It's so weird to think that there was a time in my movie going life when I didn't go to the internet To find out about things. I just sort of, it just sort of came into my consciousness somehow. Right. Maybe I saw a review somewhere. Maybe I saw, oh, something got a golden globe nomination. I've never heard of that. Um, Like I remember, for example, the following year, I had not heard of Rushmore until I saw that Bill Murray had been nominated for a golden globe for supporting actor And a lot of people, and then I read a review and people said, oh, he's really great. I didn't know who Wes Anderson was. I certainly didn't know who Jason Schwartzman was. And so I just thought, oh, Bill Murray. And look, he's getting award recognition. This is exciting. That's how I heard of Rushmore. And, uh, and I, and I don't remember how I heard of the apostle. I think at that point I knew who Robert Duvall was as a function of a of the seventies, which was network, the Godfather apocalypse now. Sure. Um, I don't think I'd seen tender mercies yet or anything like that. And so, mm. so I think I probably saw it just because maybe some awards, uh, talk and it just sounded neat. Like, Oh, you get to see an actor be a fire and brimstone preacher. Now we're talking. Yeah. And so I went and saw it, I think with my mom and I was blown away by it. It, it redefined at the time, and my, and this is still my opinion, it redefined my definition of good acting. Hmm. Um, and then I went on to see several other Robert Duvall performances, including Tender Mercies and The Great Santini. And then the following year, he was in a civil action. And I realized, oh, he, this guy is my favorite actor of all time. He's incredible. His instincts are impeccable and sometimes counterintuitive to what we as viewers think we want. Hmm. You know, when we, and the apostle is for me, a prime example, you go into it expecting or think, thinking, okay, I want an actor that's really going to play this up and just be, just be through the roof over the top. That's what I want. And he is that occasionally, but even when he's doing that, he's one, he's completely human Mm -hmm. and and even when you go in wanting, uh, and I felt this way about the next year in a civil action where he plays the opposing council um, for a, a you know a, a big evil company and stuff right, like that. Right, right. They're and poisoning
1: you, the water in that one, right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And you feel like, oh, I want this guy to be pure evil. I'm going to excite. I'm gonna, I'm so excited to see that. But then he plays every character as human, except in network. But that's a, that's a satire. Um, and it winds up giving you something more than what you want winds up forcing you to take these characters seriously as people. Yeah. His, his acting, I feel like makes you a better person by watching it. (laughs) I might be overstating. Uh, so anyway, that is maybe the biggest impact that the apostle had on me aside from a, from an artistic standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, we'll talk about that in a moment. Sure. Um, so when, did you see the apostle in the theater at the time or did you see it later? I, uh, sad, sad to say, I actually
1: did not catch it in the theater. I, I did know that it was coming out, but at the Mm -hmm. time I lived in North Carolina and it was much more difficult than it is in California to find an independent, you know, very, uh, low run
0: kind of movies. Admittedly, Um, I, I lived in Denver at the time and I believe it played in one theater there. Yeah. Uh, but I, and I was much more, and there's something about, uh, I mean, I can see almost any movie I want here, as you can. Oh, certainly. And because of that... I feel no real need to do that. But when I lived in Springfield, Missouri or Denver and the movie would only come to one theater and I realized it might only be here for two weeks. I got to see it now. Yeah. Suddenly there's that. And I was at that age where I was just so eager to just drink everything in. But anyway, I'm sorry. Go on.
1: No, no, no. That's okay. Yeah. There was a definite specialty to it. Now, at the time I uh, worked at a video store, so I had access not only to videos that had been released, but I also had these lists of movies that were coming out, so Mm -hmm. I didn't catch it in the theater. But I was watching like a hawk when it was going to be released to video, Mm -hmm. and and so like the day, the Tuesday that it came out on, uh, I only know Tuesday because it every new movie comes out on Tuesday. Yep. Um. So uh, I knew that when it came out, I'm going to grab the copy. I'm going to take it home, all that kind of stuff. Um. I, I can't remember actually. As you were talking about it, I was trying to recall how I first heard about it, and I can't remember. Robert Duvall was on my radar already because I remember thinking how interested I was to see uh, an actor, an artist of that caliber tackle this subject. Mm -hmm. Um, I always, at the time I wasn't as disillusioned as I am now about the potential quality of films about Christian subjects. I, I, I feel like perhaps unfairly, I feel like I'm going into it, preparing myself either to have my faith um unfairly satirized yeah or to have it um so glossed over and so completely um watered down uh, that's a great way to put it yeah. so completely flavorless that um it, it's just going to provide no substance or depth for me to chew on later um so I go in these days sadly expecting one of those two extremes at the time I didn't I didn't really know that. I was just excited about anything. Oh, he's, you know, dealing with a religious subject. He's playing a preacher. And, and so then when I saw it on video, I was stunned for, for any number of reasons, many of which I'm sure will, will probably come up in the course of conversation. But I was just, I was blown away by its authenticity. I was blown away by the, the skill at which he has captured moments that, Moments like them very much define the culture I grew up in because mm-hmm. I grew up in a um, not only a, a a Pentecostal church background but specifically a Southern Pentecostal church background as yeah. he is uh, as the, the the film is set in uh, much of the film is set in Louisiana. Yeah, it's unclear. Um, I think where the beginning of the film is set, like where he's originally from.
0: I think Texas. Uh, I well, think that would make sense. I think
1: that's the implication because I think it everybody crosses... has Southern accents in yeah. the beginning of the movie. Yeah. So. Um, But uh, but, you know, a huge chunk of the films, particularly the last like two thirds takes place in in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's not only sort of a charismatic tradition, but there's also distinctly a southern flavor of that charismatic tradition. And it it staggered me even now watching it. I can say like that is that's a snapshot. That's exactly what it's like. You don't want to you know, I've seen that. Kind of church service portrayed to varying degrees of extremity in like comedies or, or even dramas, no. um, and I, it always just reeks of this is the worst possible example of this kind of thing. The I don't know why this is the example that comes to mind. I'm probably going to regret bringing it up, so I apologize beforehand. But there's a scene in Borat of all things. (laughs) Oh yes, okay. um, That takes place in a in a Pentecostal charismatic church that um, that is just every stereotype you've ever seen displayed in all of its um, just unglamorous. Just uh, uh, words are escaping me at how rawly. satirized that whole scene is and i actually don't know if that was one of his fabricated scenes or if that was something that he actually did as a function of the character but I
0: honestly i i get the feeling that it was not yeah, i think it, it he went to well a real place partially my reason for thinking that is there's a part where uh they're praying for him and he says i don't remember what it is but he says like a swear word and they're basically oh. like repeating what he's saying. Like, it's like, Lord, we pray for this. Mm. And then he would say it and then okay, and they would then repeat, I pray for that. And then he says this word, I don't, for the life of me, I don't remember what it was. Yeah. Uh, and then they don't repeat that, but they just kind of, they just keep going. They, they, they don't repeat it. it. And yeah. I remember in that moment, actually kind of liking that, that they don't say to him, hey, don't say that
1: right instead they right. just
0: kept going mm-hmm. in sincerity and yeah. oddly enough that i liked uh and i just <laughs> thought haha no matter how hard you try to satir- satirize these people are sincere and they actually want what's good for this character they don't Look know at he's, they don't know he's a, a a fake person and so um but yes and and uh and i'm sure it was edited in such a way as that movie tends to be and i enjoy borat i think it's hilarious but I think it's probably
1: um, his funniest of the of the films that I've seen. I didn't oh, no, see the dictator, but
0: uh, I didn't see Bruno, but I did see the dictator and uh, it's, it's not as funny when yeah. it is funny. It is hard to beat, but it's no. just not as funny as Borat is. No,
1: but, um, but back to the whole, the whole idea of, uh, of just an accurate depiction of what these kind of people believe and how they navigate through their lives and uh, just the way they interact with one another. It is so soup to nuts it is completely authentic i mean i i mean honestly uh i would hold that movie up as um i would hold as i think i said this earlier uh in the recording but i just i would hold that movie's authenticity up to anybody who wanted an accurate um sort of idea of what it can be like it's it's flawless in that aspect
0: yeah and uh and this this speaks to um what Robert Duval was trying to do, because not only is he tr- is he depicting Christians, but he is also depicting the South, as you said, and both of which are regularly depicted in kind of a jokey way or mm-hmm. in a very aggressive and often in the case of the South, a very racist way. And yeah. understandably. So there's a bit of, a, there's, it's no secret. There's a bit of a history there, but slightly
1: um, sadly,
0: but at the same time, uh, by, and and I actually listened to uh his uh commentary on the film a while mm. back and he seems to be he seemed to be very angry with the way Hollywood depicts Christians and Southerners. Um and one thing that he says that I'll never forget, he uh encourages his fellow Hollywood actors, directors, producers, whatever. He says, Go to the South and just look. Hmm. And just listen. Actually, pay attention to who these people are yeah. and how they act. Because, one thing, I, I mean, I, I'm sure if you were to talk to, and here's the thing, and we're all guilty of it, including me. When you hear things about certain regions of this country or world, you have a certain idea of what that means. And so, um, and I lived in southern Missouri, which uh, I think certainly the people there consider themselves the South. I saw, I saw enough Confederate flags to know that people <laughs> think that they are the South. Um, and so, uh, so I was, I did not go to a Pentecostal church or anything like mm. that, but I certainly heard that accent and it is an, unless it's a, unless it's like a Savannah accent, it is not considered the most dignified of accents. No, no, and, it's not. And so uh, even though somebody can be a genius and have that accent, People just naturally assume that, you know, and frankly, anytime I choose to go into character as an idiot, I'll probably adopt a Southern accent. And that's on me. That's a bad thing for me to do. Um, Admittedly, it's also one of the only accents I can do. Um, (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, it's something that everybody does. And he felt the need to subvert that, not with saying, not by saying, this isn't. I, I wish it wasn't like this, so I'm going to depict it as a different way. It's more, this is how it actually is. And yeah, sure, there might be some people that are like what you're thinking mm-hmm. and as Hollywood depicts them. But for the most part, it's not. There is an element of racism in the apostle. Mm-hmm. But that element is even in the context of a small Louisiana town that is viewed as a fringe and uh, negative element. Certainly I mean, in, in the church that is started in this small Southern town, mm-hmm. it's white people and black people going together. They don't have a problem with it.
1: Utterly when, integrated.
0: When one guy shows up, uh, who is, uh, overtly racist, people have no patience for him and they cannot, they will not tolerate his attitude. Absolutely. Um, and that's one of the things that I like is that it, it does seem to understand that, uh, that yes, you can, you can, you can have like difference uh amongst races but that incidentally like class and culture seems to bond people way more than race does and so in this small town you have again black people and white people who are very similar to one another Mm -hmm. because they're all from a small southern town So what do I care? What, you know, what do they care? What skin color the other person has, right? They're absolutely no different than me. Culturally, we all have the same points of reference and we're all trying to do the same thing. Yeah. And so that in itself is astounding because I'm sure if you were to have a major Hollywood film and I, I hate to be one of those people who talks about, Oh, Hey, the way Hollywood does it. Um, although I do tend to be that, but just in different ways. Um, I feel like if they were to take the, if, if a major Hollywood studio were to take this film and ma- and try to make it, I'm, I bet the church would be predominantly white, mm. if not completely white. Um, yeah, it's highly possible and be seen as clueless, mm-hmm. uh, about anything racial, if not just over, uh, overtly aggressive about it. Right. Right. And that, that is one example But the the film is just swimming with examples of Robert Duvall. And I think maybe this comes from being an actor who, when you're an actor, you are trained to have sympathy with the character you are playing, no matter how terrible. Robert Duvall has played Joseph Stalin, Mm -hmm. Adolf Eichmann. He plays Frank Hackett in Network. He's played some pretty despicable people. Absolutely, yeah. But he needs to find something there because nobody's the villain in their own life no matter how much they might hate themselves they're not right. the villain in their own life and so he i think this desire to find humanity like true humanity anywhere and everywhere i think that comes from an actor's i think that's an actor's instinct that bleeds into uh his directorial choices and Sorry, and, and and Rhetorical choices. That's not the word. No authorial is. Oh, nice. No, Look at no, you. The, but, I can tell you're a writer. No, you know, you know, stuff like that.
1: <laughs> yes, sadly. Um, the, I, I mean, Robert Duvall is unquestionably, a, I would classify him as, yeah, I don't even think I'm going to qualify this. I think he's an American treasure. He's, he's actually, um, just such a, a benchmark for what high quality acting and performing can be specifically in cinema. Um, but what's great about what he accomplished, uh, so many of the things you referenced there, you know, the, the one thing you said is that, um, you know, he could have confronted the extreme by going in the complete opposite direction, but, um, I forget who said this, this feels like a quote somewhere, um, that the, the greatest, uh, counter for a counterfeit is actually not the other extreme, but the truth Mm -hmm. that the, the, the greatest way to confront, a false stereotype is not by going to the other extreme, but rather just to present the truth in simplistic authenticity. And, um, it's interesting that he chose to do that, um, with such a degree of, of subtlety. Uh, you talk about the, the, the ignorance that's often displayed in caricatures like that. Mm -hmm. I think specifically there's a, the, 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 there's a minister in the film, Reverend Blackwell, who, um, Robert Duvall's character meets when he moves to this town. I know we're kind of bouncing around all over in the plot, but when he gets to this town, um, he meets this Reverend Blackwell and Reverend Blackwell is immediately um, though he's, he's a black guy who's uh, living in a very, very small town, he is portrayed from the very first instance as sharp. He's portrayed as, uh, as I wouldn't, I wouldn't just say intelligent, but wise. Yeah. And from the very first conversation that they have, you know this is a dignified man. With an incredible degree of of uh, just gravity to yeah. him, and that's the way so many of the characters are treated, um, yeah. just uh, just automatically given respect and automatically given the the, the man that he meets. Uh, who's only in like three or four scenes the man that he meets uh with with only one leg out by the river oh yeah um who who has no more than three or four lines yeah. in the entirety of the movie but is such a memorable character because of the immediate dignity with which he's treated in the film yeah um despite all of the opportunities for um you know uh satire or uh, I keep using that but just there's there's tons of opportunity for them to be silly. And they're often humorous. There's moments of great humor in the film. Oh yeah. But it's never just
0: silly. Uh, I don't think. Yeah, I feel like uh when whenever um somebody attempts to shoot something even a movie like Fargo, which I love and I think it has a tremendous humanity to it. I mean even those characters are there, there's a specificity to them, which I think is to the film's credit, and that's to the brilliance of the Coen brothers. But they are also character types. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so I feel like there's a lot of filmmakers, good and bad, that when they try to show something that take, takes place uh, in a certain region, they wind up trying to make a commentary on that region in yeah. some way. And now here's the thing. Robert Duvall saying, Oh, these people are people just like everyone else. That is also a commentary, right? But that's not a commentary he's inflicting on these characters or on this situation. I mean, and like I said, good, good directors and bad. Um, I mean, I just mentioned the Coen brothers. Fargo is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Another movie, gone baby gone, which I think is a really great, certainly a great uh, directorial debut by Ben Affleck. Right. That takes place in Boston. And so a lot of those characters, he has them be tough in a way that is organic to them, but he also seems to be trying to really put you in, the, in this world. So he might be having characters be a little bit more aggressive than one would assume because he's trying to give you a portrait of this place and the characters wind up sort of uh, playing into that more than they might otherwise. Uh, whereas with the Apostle, I feel like Again, he still has a point to make, but he's – like you said, he's making that point not by overdoing it, but by just saying, no, these are who these people are. Right, right. It's not who I wish they would be. It's not who – it's not the anti what you think they are. It's just this is who they are, and I'm just going to let – I'm just going to present them as they are.
1: Yeah. One Um, of the things that I – we were talking about moments of humor. One of the things that I love – a moment that I love is when the – there's a scene where – the bus full of church people breaks down. Yeah. And they're trying to change the tire on the bus and one lady I forget I, I didn't get to rewatch the scene, but I think one lady comments on like she said, Well, you know, you you better get, you know, so and so, you know, miss so and so off the bus before uh before you try to jack the car up, or you'll never be able to jack it up because yeah. she's a she's a very large woman. <laughs> she's she's incredibly heavy set. And it's really funny because they start going at each other. Yeah. What I love about that scene is is how it's resolved because the, what he does to get it resolved is, okay, you you two come over here now, you know, love each other's necks, hug each yeah. other's necks. And, and it's such a, th- that is a genuine moment. One of them as they're, as they're moving over to make peace uh, for these, you know, hurtful remarks. One of them, oh, thank you, Jesus. And as, yeah. as they're moving in <laughs> for this hug and I'm like, that is, that is so the way, it goes when there's like offenses or things like that. It's like ah oh, no 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 love, love on each yeah. other, you know. And and it's just it's just great. I I feel like no moment in the apostle is pushed. I feel like everything is just. It's almost as if the camera was never even there. I mean, clearly it is clearly there's a lot of specificity to where he's established the camera and, and, you know, there's, there's also just some great film craft happening in the apostle, Yeah. but it feels as if there is no fabrication, there is no, um, contrivance at all. Everything is just happening and you can just
0: get to see it. Well, and this speaks to the writing. Uh, I mean, you have, you've read the script, you have it, you brought it with you, you have it with you. Um, I've not read the script. You have. The film often feels certainly in the in the interaction between characters. The film often feels improvised. Mm. Um, I assume there's some improvisation there. There's a little, but bit. I don't. But I don't know. I mean, is the script pretty close to how these characters
1: you, uh, interact? You might be surprised at how much um, at how much was scripted, mm-hmm. but there are there are many scenes. In which the meat of the scene was scripted, but elements of the scene on film were improvised. The best example yeah. is when uh, when Billy Bob Thornton's character yeah. tries to bulldoze the church down. Mm-hmm. Um, and much of the interaction between Robert Duvall and Billy Bob Thornton was, of course, scripted. Yeah. But the asides that the other characters are uh, giving, specifically the radio announcer who happens to be on the radio while this whole event is taking place, every single one of his lines are improvised. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. So, so there's there's a lot of scenes in which, as I said before, the, the, the core of the scene was scripted, but he allowed these people to just delve into the environment and just play. There's one moment... During a series of montages where he – during not a series of montages. During a montage, a series of scenes where he's evangelizing in various places. There's one place where he goes to a tent, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's a number of different sort of tag team preachers getting there. Immediately following that scene in the tent is uh, one of the ministers, uh, um, a young black man, is out sort of dancing around. Yeah, uh, it
0: it looks like – low ambition jogging he's just kind of going back and forth yes uh it looks like he's pacing and jogging at the same time but in in like a seven foot span exactly and uh i found out uh in the commentary on on that it's
1: one of the few scenes i watched that um they actually when they did that tent scene duval just sort of set it up and just like let's go yeah and All of that was improvised. Every single bit of it was improvised. He just let them go. And that scene of the man jogging was when they cut the scene, that man who happens to be an actual minister um, was just decompressing from what he had just been involved in. And Duvall was like, well, don't tell me about it. Film it. (laughs) He was like, you know, just go over there and just, you know, just set it up and film it. So they just let him do his thing and they filmed it. And I don't know how many of those kind of moments made it into the film, but I get the impression that quite a few moments of just that degree of sincerity made it to the film, where it's just like, well, no,
0: this is just what happens. Well, and I think he the fact that he cast uh, a good portion of the film with non-actors, I mean, he certainly, he's got, you know, Farrah Fawcett, Billy Bob Thornton. Right. He's got June Carter cash of all people. I know. Um, as, his, one- as his own mother. It's very strange. <laughs> She's two years older than him. <laughs> <laughs> She's his mother. Yeah. I don't care how many hair pieces you put on. You still look about the same age, <laughs> but it's fine. Um, and so, uh, but uh, with a lot of these other care, a lot of these other actors, they're, Ca- a lot of these other characters they're cast with mostly non-actors mm-hmm. and that can be a problem if you are committed to the script completely as written right because i think an actor is able to make something sound natural a non-actor might not be able to do that some can mm-hmm. but not everybody and so by saying hey what what am i going to do right right uh, Pentecostal, uh, Pentecostal sermon for somebody right. who already <laughs> has his own. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let him do it. Yeah, And the same with, I think, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the uh, members of the congregation. I feel like he just, he probably had a certain thing in mind for them. Maybe they said it, may, and he probably said, if that doesn't sound right to you, say whatever sounds right along those lines. Yeah, um, Because that speaks to a commitment to realism. And I mean, I, I'm kind of repeating myself when I say wanting to be real, but also specifically not wanting to be phony because Mm -hmm. I'm sure even he realized that yes, as much respect as I might have for these people and as much respect as I might have for this region and wanting to get it right. I've been in Hollywood for a long time and there might be something I might have a blind spot. Who knows? So I'm just going to leave some of it to, to them and just a lot of stuff will be filled in. I assume. Yeah. And, Boy, I mean, it really shows. It's it's a very natural. It's very naturalistically shot, um, and to me, uh, when the plot kicks in, and for those that don't know, if you're listening to this, and certainly if you listened this far in, I assume you've seen the film. But um, you know, it, it's about this guy who's a the pastor of a mega church, yeah, uh, who has some uh, let's say marriage problems uh, that results in him getting drunk and hitting somebody with a baseball bat, and then fleeing to a small town and getting rid of his identity and all that. So there's some pretty heavy stuff going on. Um, all that stuff is fine. It's good. Mm -hmm. There's good stuff happening, but it's when he's interacting with the, uh, you know, the, uh, Reverend Blackwell and Walton Goggins shows up before he was like a name at all. Right. Right. Um, you know, with sort of these not like non-actors or, or not established Hollywood actors or something like that. Um, that's when the film really, for me, the energy really gets jacked up and I, I just can't take my eyes off the screen yeah. and not always just him, hmm. but everybody else around him. Oh yeah. It is just the, okay. You mentioned that, that, that larger woman. Yes. <laughs> when she, I think it, I think it's the first time she shows up on screen mm-hmm. where this small town hasn't had a church in a while.
1: Right, right. So
0: who knows? People maybe haven't been going to church or they've had to travel a ways to go to church. Right. And this woman probably hasn't been going to church. Uh, it might, she's got two little kids. She's a larger woman. She might, it might not be easy to take kids to the, the next town over or something right, like that. Right, right. And so the, the adorable little bus uh, pulls up <laughs> And you see her and her two kids and she's walking out and I want to hug that actress and I want oh, to hug yeah. that character because she goes, she goes, all right, come on, we're going to go, we're going to go praise the Lord. Yeah. And she just says it was such excitement and such, there, there's no sense of irony there. Hmm. And then there's, it comes a humorous line of like, now I don't want you to get a, out of hand and I'm going to have to whoop you. Oh, like right. it's, which I think is hilarious, but it's also like she's excited and it's just, it feels so genuine and real, and I don't know. I can't. And that that scene has nothing to do with, aside from the fact that he directed it and maybe wrote it. Right. That scene has nothing to do with Robert duvall as an actor. Like he's he was able to coax wonderful, lived-in performances from mm-hmm. mo, from non-actors and and actors alike. Yeah. And I just I cannot. I mean, we're being pretty hyperbolic. I don't think it's necessarily a perfect film. It is so much of what I like in a movie. Oh, absolutely. And so I will, we, we will move into, um, some of the, the spiritual elements. And I'd like to try to bring this episode in, in around an hour. So I think, I think we can do that. Um, you mentioned one of the things that gets you about the movie Mm -hmm. is the way it, so far we've talked a lot about Southerners and that sort of thing. Uh, but the way it depicts Christians and how by and large you feel like, um, Hollywood does not depict Christians well, I I couldn't agree more. At some point, we're probably going to do an episode about the way Christians are depicted, Hmm. uh, which is, um, I would say, often as villains. Certainly. um, Certainly. You know, hey, we also have Footloose. (laughs) There's a time to dance. Yeah. uh, uh.
1: Yeah. That's the thing, though, is that they it's this idea that supposedly conviction is somehow villainous that, yeah. that, and, and there are certainly a, a, there's a long line of very like living, breathing human beings who have very much tarnished sort of the, the reputation of Christians who, who are very outspoken or mm-hmm. who are very, um, you know, sincere about their faith. And that's, I think the thing is, 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 they're usually depicted as judgmental. They're usually depicted as very um, uh, prejudiced in a large variety of ways. Um,
0: and artistically, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead.
1: No, 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 no. I was just sort of going on that span that they're usually depicted in a, in any variety of negative connotations. Yeah. Um,
0: and I will say that artistically, I I, I feel like I get it you have a group of people that certainly in this country i would say have had they've been the majority they've had power and a lot of what they do or what what they appear to do seems to run counter to the very message they're sending mm-hmm. i mean we are followers of Jesus. Jesus uh, surrounded himself with, let's just say, sinners, yeah. um, people that were socially undesirable. And if you look at a lot of mainstream churches, and that include that, and, and mainstream Christians, and that can include me uh, and possibly you as well. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a natural ten- a human tendency, to do what is comfortable, yeah. even if you are called not to. Mm-hmm. Um, to to re- even if you're called to reach out to the people that might slap you in the face. Um, and so the idea that like, if you have a character that is powerful and prejudice and all that already, that's pretty rough. Now just imagine, Oh, here's what I'll do. I can layer on this other thing of seeming righteousness, a veneer Mm -hmm. of righteousness. Now on top of everything else, he's not merely a bad guy. He's also a hypocrite and hypocrisy is something that people really hate no matter what it is. They particularly believe, you know, uh, atheists, Buddhists, Christians, Muslims, everybody hates a hypocrite. That's true. And so when you have, if you want to have a villain and you really want us to hate him, that's where that, then you layer on this, this, this aspect that this person thinks they're doing, not merely the right thing but the rightest thing the thing that God himself has sanctioned yeah and so artistically I get I understand that can it's it's a very I won't say easy Eh, I'll say easy it's a very easy way to get us to hate this character all the more yeah um you know you look at uh, hunchback of Notre Dame uh Notre Dame pardon me huh. uh, and he's going up again the 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 villain is a don't remember exactly what the uh, what the title is, but he's a representative of the church.
1: are The uh, yeah, are you talking about the animated one or the or the Charles Lawton one? Or oh, yeah?
0: I think all of the above.
1: Yeah, because I know he's he's listed sometimes as like a cardinal, sometimes as a judge, uh, always an always an affiliate of the church in some yes. capacity.
0: Yes. Um, um. Yeah. And and high up, a high ranking. Right. And um, and so it's uh. And so the, this idea that uh, – like in Hunchback of Notre Dame, like we're dealing with – at the moment, I, I do have – now that you mentioned the animated version, that's the only one I have in my head. Oh, sorry. Partially because the villain has a really great song. Uh, oh, yeah. That is uh, terrifying. terrifying. <laughs> um, but uh, – but in this case, like we're dealing with gypsies, we're dealing with Quasimodo, basically the outcasts of society, the Mm -hmm. people that the church should be wanting to take in and love. And he sees it as an opportunity to kind of shore up his own power by demonizing these people. And it's the exact opposite of what a Christian should be. So again, it's, it works really well, um, to have, to layer on this other element to a villain. Um, but it does often get, bothersome when you start to do it with just like, oh, here's the the next door neighbor. And I don't necessarily mean Ned Flanders, who often actually is a, who incidentally as, an, as annoying as he might be, he is next door. He lives next door to Homer Simpson, mm-hmm. thus making Ned Flanders one of the most forgiving characters we've ever seen unquestionably yeah. ever. And so oh, yeah. you can make fun of him all you want. You would have killed Homer Simpson if you live next to him.
1: Oh, yeah. One of the things I love about, because I'm such a huge fan of The Simpsons, one of the things I love about Ned Ned Flanders is that he's this extreme vision of what an evangelical Christian is with no hypocrisy. He, as extreme as his views are, he's sincere to the bone marrow. I mean, he is completely, completely believes everything that he puts out there. Yeah. And. It's funny, too, because in relation to the apostle, uh, when we when I first I've seen the film with a number of friends and family members, and I'm always curious to see the reactions when he uh, because, you know, in the plot, his his wife is sleeping with the youth minister. Mm -hmm. And when he in response to this, finding this out, there's some great scenes. There's the the wonderful scene when he's confronting her about it. There's so much subtlety going on in that that it it. Blows my mind. It's an acting class. Watching that moment yeah. of his confrontation with her. It's an acting class in understatement and in subtlety. It, it, it's wonderful. But the I always I'm always interested to see how people respond when they see him after that scene get drunk. Mm-hmm. He's not you know staggering over everything, but he's clearly drunk. Yeah, and violent, and uh, and you know that that violence results actually in in eventually. In yeah. the youth minister's death. And uh, that's why he's in trouble. That's why he has to flee. And I'm always fascinated to see how people respond to that when they're watching the movie. And I did have somebody at one point say, why, why is this movie doing this? Like, I, I hate his character now. Yeah. Like, I hate him for, do, for doing this. What's he, what's he doing? Yeah. And I think it's so interesting because it would be so easy to view that as hypocritical. Well, he's a he's a preacher, right. and why is he doing all of this? But that's what's great about this film, and that's what's absolutely brilliant about Duvall's performance, is he layers all of these choices that are seen as negative. The film doesn't endorse anything he's just done, yeah. Uh, nor does it excuse it, but it layers it with this idea of this man who sincerely believes these things was driven to do this. He is still. A human being, he still faces these sorts of temptations and weaknesses, and it in no way um, uh, a word is escaping me. It in no way invalidates his faith Mm -hmm. and what he preaches and what he proclaims. It it's able to show him as a human being with a a multitude of different desires without making his faith uh, hinge on whether or not he lives up to all of those things he purports.
0: You know, I remember uh, back when Conan O'Brien hosted Late Night with Conan mm. O'Brien, and he had a little bit uh, that in, that had to do with the Apostle, strangely enough. Wow, I don't think um, I ever saw that. And he, he described, he basically had a one, not even a full sentence of description about the film, and he said, uh, a movie, a Robert Duvall's film about a flawed man of faith. I remember hearing that at the time, and I don't think I was able to verbalize this at the time, but now what I think, and I understand why that would be phrased, why it would be phrased that way. But what I want to say is like, oh, so a man of faith, you, you say that as though that is a specific, that's very specific to this character. Mm. Well, every man of faith is every person of faith is, is flawed. And so to, to act as though this is unusual now, admittedly, not every, not all of us commit murder. I mean, I have, I don't know if you have. Uh, at least
1: four times, okay. but nobody, but nobody knows. Oh, how, how big is your listenership? Not very. Oh, you're
0: fine. I'm fine. Don't okay. worry about no it. No Um, and they're not, they're also not actively engaged. So you, they probably, <laughs> they're like, ah, I guess I could call nine one one, but my phone's over there. So I, I gotcha. Um, <laughs> sorry, everybody. I, I, if you're listening, I know you're engaged. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that I think is one of the most fascinating things is that uh, in showing in any other, not any other, but in a lot of other movies and TV shows, if somebody is is a Christian, then if we see them doing something that is not Christian, it's usually either overtly stated or subtly implied that, well, that's who they really are. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. And the Christian thing is maybe some kind of dodge, but they're not, if they really believed these things, they wouldn't act like this. Right. Which what, what fascinates me is I would venture to say that the same could be said of every single person in the world. Hmm. If you really believed this, you wouldn't act like this. Yeah. Like, you don't have to be – for example, uh, there are plenty of non-Christians who get married. Right. And thus take vows that they're going to – do any number of things Mm. and then they will get divorced or one will cheat on the other or the, or just not support the other. They'll be verbally abusive or maybe even physically abusive. Uh, And you don't have to be Christian to take that vow. And one could say, well, if they really believed this vow ever, then they wouldn't be acting like this. You Mm. know, they certainly think these things are negative. They think it's wrong to cheat on somebody, but they're still doing it. Why? They must not actually think that it's wrong to cheat on somebody. No, it's the nature of, it's the nature of humanity. You're always going to go against, what you think is right and that doesn't change the fact that you think it's right right you know i mean it happens all the time and so but the fact that the film doesn't it judges the man's it judges the character's actions it says these are wrong yeah and even as he flees i instinctively think oh like he's he's sober now Mm -hmm. not okay Him being drunk does not excuse what he's done.
1: Right. Because
0: one could also make the argument that he shouldn't be getting drunk either. Mm -hmm. But for any number of reasons, I'm not saying that, oh, well, he was drunk. So, I mean, really, what can you do? Like, he still deserves to go to jail. Even if the youth minister doesn't die, he still deserves to go to jail. Yeah. That's how it is. Oh, certainly. And so when he flees, it's like, well, he's dead sober now. And he's just running from the consequences of his actions. Mm -hmm. That's awful and like like your friends said like i have a hard t- i'm having a hard time sympathizing with this guy but then you go and see that he does tremendous good yeah mhm and you and i find myself thinking like but which one is it like even i think which one is it it's both it's literally possible for david to be viewed to be described as a man after god's own heart mhm and do some of the worst things you'll ever read about in the bible absolutely yeah and and I find myself going back to this idea of uh, Joseph and the amazing technicolor dream Code, obviously, <laughs> as it is described in the Bible. Uh, the idea of uh, you, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Yeah, it is. Po- now, here's the thing. I'm sure God doesn't say, oh, OK, well, this uh, youth minister getting getting killed, that's a good thing. Hmm. But uh, the main character fleeing to this small town That's not an inherently good thing either, but God uses it to reinvigorate the faith and sense of community that this small town has. Good things still happen out of bad things, and it doesn't render the bad things good. Right. Like, they coexist, but in the end, it's still working for a larger good. Um, Yeah. And what I just said is, it sounds contradictory, and I always have a hard time talking about it because it's hard. It's very... It's nuanced. It's a fine line. There's a lot of stuff going on with it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if listeners are confused, feel free to email me. I probably won't be able to help uh, uh, elaborate on that. But there's like one of the things that is so fascinating to me
1: about and this this goes to what uh, any any listener, any person of faith would feel about your definition of grace specifically, Mm -hmm. because many people see grace as kind of your your free your free pass. Yeah, that's you can do whatever you want. And it's okay. What's interesting about now, read
0: what I like to do. Mm-hmm. I like to do whatever I want so that grace may abound. I think that's. Oh, I think that's okay, right?
1: I, well, actually, I think that the Paul's response to that would be by no means. Oh, so not by any means necessary. It would appear I that, stop,
0: was, It appear I stopped reading at the wrong. Place.
1: Oh man, <laughs> it, that happens to me all the time. <laughs> happens to me all the time. Um, no, the, the the idea that so so here is. Okay, I'm going to try not to get too heavy with this, Okay, uh, but the idea of grace in many people's concept, particularly non-Christians, is, oh, well, you think that grace gives you a free pass to be abusive, prejudiced, um, despicable people, um, and they often see it as like, oh, well, you know, I was, I was doing this and I was doing that, but I escaped the consequences because of grace. Mm. What's absolutely stunning about the plot of the apostle is this man out of um, rage and fury and confusion, does these despicable things. Drunk um, loses everything because of it. He may never see his kids again. Mm -hmm. He's uh, certainly not going to live a free life again if the police ever catch him. Sure. What's beautiful about it to me is he does, he goes, he reinvigorates this sense of community. If you'll remember from the scene, actually the reason that he wants to handle – the Billy Bob Thornton situation himself when he tries to bulldoze down the church, somebody offers to call the cops and he's like, no, 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 don't, don't call the cops. And, And it's because he knows this is all over once he does that. And then as the church grows in popularity and in congregation, it starts getting a little bit more prominent and it does, it revitalizes this sense of community mm-hmm. and the entire sequence in the climax of the film is so beautiful in so many different ways because he's preaching a, a sermon, a sermon he scripted, by the way, he did script most, that, of, most of that of his own of his own. Sermon. Oh, no question yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and he, he's preaching this sermon to end all sermons. But even before he begins preaching it, the police enter into the church in the back. Mm-hmm. And there's a, speaking again to sort of the, the wisdom of these people, uh, Reverend Blackwell's wife is sitting. It's, it's a blink and you'll miss it kind of moment. But when the police enter in in the back, Reverend Blackwell's wife is sitting on the front. And uh, Duvall's character is, is visibly shaken by the yeah. fact that the police are there. He knows it's up. He knows it's like, I'm going to exit this place. And go to prison, probably for the rest of my life. Yeah, and it's so great because he he wants to continue sort of preaching. There's some people here who don't know what he's done, but the Blackwells do. Yeah, and when that all happens, it's a very subtle moment. He quickly eyeballs her because she's sitting on the front row, yeah. and she lifts her hand in a in a in a kind of a you're okay, it's okay, yeah, this is all right.
0: And it's such a a powerful moment to me of just speaking. Yeah, she's not a ma- she's not a huge character, but. There's such a strength to her. Like she seems Unquestionably. I, I've known a few like pastors' wives, mm-hmm. and they, they are kind of the first lady of the church. Yeah, certainly. And it's it's very strange, like the role that they play. And she get I wouldn't be surprised if that woman is actually a pastor's wife, because she gets it so well. She knows exactly yeah. what to project. It's mm-hmm. astounding. And in that moment, yeah. she's she's every bit. The actor that Robert Duvall is, oh, unquestionably. And what's so great about that is that
1: then at the end of, and I, I, if I wanted to say anything about this uh, film, I wanted to say this: there is a straight-up Christian conversion in the film. There are a couple. Uh, yes, uh, I would definitely consider uh, it's debate. I've heard debates on the Billy Bob Thornton character, but okay. I would I would consider it one. Yeah. Um, but you're right. There are a couple but specifically uh, Walton Goggins, his character is Sam, I think. Sam's, uh, at the end of, you know, spoiler alert, he gets saved. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But Sam's conversion at the end of that film is, I'm going to say, it's the only conversion I've ever seen on film that does not at all feel contrived. It doesn't feel forced. It feels like that conversion is birthed out of that character from what we've seen of him before and what we see happening in the scene that he's in, it does not – there's no dramatic – There's. by the way, I don't think there's any music score in that entire scene. There's no manipulation on the part of Robert Duvall as the filmmaker to make you get behind right. what's happening. He just – when the invitation is given, the only the only music. Oh, I know there's no music score because the only music is is an organ yeah. being played, yeah. um, which is actually happening in the scene. And so, and Sam just accepts the conversion. And uh, after he prays with him, Duvall just whispers in his ear, uh, "You're going to heaven now. I'm going to prison. I'm going to jail. You're going to heaven." Yeah. And I thought, and, and he says and, it with
0: a bit a bit of a chuckle too.
1: Exactly. I'm going to jail. You're going to heaven. And. Uh, to get back, lest you think I've lost the plot. That, to me, uh, read as a person is what grace is. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not a free pass that you don't face the consequences. It's that in the midst of inevitable consequences, there can be redemption. There mm-hmm. can be beauty. There can be a moment of uh, of of strength and power that comes despite the inevitable consequences there's there's no way he's getting i feel like another thing is that if it was made in some sort of stereotypically sort of christian film genre fashion i feel like there might have been a legal scene at the end where they were like you know what you've done so much good for the community we're gonna let you off yeah and and it's not instead as the credits roll we hear him as now as part of a chain gang yeah in clearly in prison doing what he has always done and preaching the gospel according to what he, what is birthed out of him. Yeah. And I think it is so powerful that, that, that's, that that's the way the, the, the film resolves. That, yeah. no, he doesn't get to just do whatever he wants with no consequence. But at the same time, the inevitable consequences don't dilute the power of what he's putting forth right. uh, in, in as, a, as a person. And his, his message, the gospel message
0: that he wants to, to deliver. And I think that speaks to the arc of the character, too, because I think early on, I think the character has maybe gotten a little comfortable. He's part of a big church and he's, you know, in certain cultures uh, – and maybe even just American Christian culture in general, the pastor is a bit of a celebrity, mm-hmm. kind of a rock star at times. And certainly in that film he is. Yeah. Uh, just like look at the way he comes in. Uh, admittedly things aren't going well, but uh, yeah. he comes in with sunglasses on and he's just yeah. like rocking yeah. out and all that kind of thing. Um, but uh, So I think he's very much, I think he's sincere in his beliefs, but I think he's also very much into himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think then things don't go well for him. He finds out his wife has cheated on him. They take the church away from him. Yeah. And I think the film is very honest by the way, and the way church politics works, which is unfortunate. Yeah. But, um, but he gets that taken away from him. So external circumstances shake him to the point that he starts drinking and he commits an act of violence. Mm-hmm. That's who he is at the beginning because he found his sense of self in perhaps status and any number of things. Yeah. And then by the end, he's been so completely humbled uh, and he's seen God work often like through him and outside of him that he realizes the, the, the reality of what it is he actually believes. Mm-hmm. And by the end, I mean, he's in jail. He is. And like you said, possibly for the rest of his life. Right. And that is that doesn't dampen his spirits before right. he had his church taken away from him and it led him to drink and hurt. Yeah. Now it doesn't, it, he's still, I'm sure he has moments where he's like, I really wish I wasn't in jail, <laughs> but as, <laughs> as I'm sure anybody would. Yeah. Um, but that last sequence is he's not going to be defined by these circumstances. Mm-hmm. And that speaks to th- your idea of, of grace, which I, I really like, which is, you know, it is not a get, a get out of jail free card. It is not a everything's fine. You know, you never have to pay the consequences. What it means is that that's not who you are. Without grace, if you're a murderer, that's all you are. That's mm-hmm. all you're ever going to be. You should go to jail because you're a murderer and that's it. You you know, if you cheat on your wife and there's no sense of grace either for, on the part of, of the wife or um, or of God, then you're a cheater and you always will be. And there certainly is. And there's certainly no reason for her to forgive you Hmm. or for God to forgive you because that's all you're ever going to be. But grace comes in and says, yes, you are that you did that. And there are consequences to that, but you are more, you are more than that. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think something that I have a hard time with. I, you know, my, my wife and I have, uh, this, we, we had a pretty big, not a big argument this, uh, this last week, but it was a bit of an argument. And I said something that, that was very dumb. It wasn't remarkably hurtful, but it was dumb and it really made things worse. And I knew it was dumb. The minute, the minute I said, it. I was like, ah, that was dumb. That was a yeah. dumb thing. I've
1: been there and honey, I'm sorry. Yeah.
0: It's, but that's the thing. Like, and Jen was so, she did like textbook, right? She hmm. did everything right. And one of the things she said, she's like, I've said dumb things, you know, it's, <laughs> she goes, it's, it's fine. It happens. And, uh, but I was so mad at myself. I was literally unable to accept her grace. Hmm. And so I proceeded to, uh, basically emotionally punish myself for the rest yeah. of the day. Right. Um, and it was just like, like I had no grace for myself, um, because I felt like, all right, it's not that I said something dumb. It's that I am dumb. Hmm. I said, why else would I say that if I wasn't dumb? Right. If I wasn't right. a bad husband, that's the kind of thing bad husbands say. So I must be a bad. And just, and it's like, and thus I need to be punished in some way. And if she's not going to do it, then I'll do it. It's just this horrible, awful way of thinking. Right. That is a graceless world. Mm-hmm. And for somebody to sort of crap on the idea of grace And I think, don't get me wrong, I think there probably are a number of Christians that maybe simplify grace too much and maybe use it as a way to get out of jail free emotionally or spiritually or whatever. Um, But the very nature of it is transformative. It says, yes, this is where you are right now. You've done something wrong. It was terrible. You shouldn't have done it. And there are going to be earthly consequences. But that you don't have to stay here. You can move on to the next thing. And and you'll probably be a better person in this next thing because – you've learned from this thing. Whereas, you know, as I've uh, heard countless times, I've talked on the podcast before about, uh, porn and the guilt associated with it, but guilt in general, uh, that I used to think guilt and shame were the most powerful motivate aside from fear. Uh, they are the most powerful motivators and they are, they are motivators and they are powerful, but they're not healthy because eventually the guilt beats you down so much that you literally think, well, I'm no good and I'm never going to be any good. So really what's the point in fighting this? And you actually wind up doing the thing that you felt guilty for more Mm -hmm. than if you didn't feel that guilt. It's, it's, It's incredibly ironic how that works. And so, what we have in the apostle, we have a, uh, a I would say, deeply flawed. He's as flawed as the rest of us. He does something that maybe not everybody does, but everybody has it in them to do that. Oh, certainly. I mean, I've wanted to kill you, like, three times during this conversation.
1: I know. Well, well, okay. So, maybe... If I didn't have little, a,
0: If I had a baseball bat in here, you'd be gone.
1: I I I, I thought as much and I was about to say that maybe you know you're no better a person than I am, but I'm clearly better than you because I've only wanted to kill you twice. Fair enough. So Fair enough. You've at least got me, but you know what? Now we're even. So exactly because
0: uh, now, undoubtedly, now you're like, all right, well,
1: well, fine. Then, there's there's your third one.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I wish I could just sneak some arsenic into his Propel Zero grape, <laughs> but you know what? Even that wouldn't uh, wouldn't sully the wonderful flavor. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Um, so, I, that's the thing. So, it is a flawed character. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's a flawed man. Um, and he does some terrible things that, and he doesn't want to bear the consequences because he's very much about his own, you know, his own life and himself and doing what he can. And that leads him to do something that is also wrong. And he just keeps, he makes yeah. a lot of wrong decisions, but he also, he's still a Christian in that moment. He's just making major mistakes and they're mistakes that everybody can make and still be sincere in their faith. But it is that faith that eventually gets him and the faith of others that eventually gets him to a place where he's not afraid of the consequences. And he realizes I'm not just because I'm in jail doesn't mean that that's all that I am. That's all that I'm about. And it's just that is, and by the way, you know, it's interesting, and maybe I'll throw it to you. This is a pretty high-pressure question, so uh, if you don't have an immediate answer, it's fine. I'm, I'm braced. You know, when, you, when you're when you raised in the church, as I was, uh, you come to just accept certain terms, and you, you know what they mean, but you also don't... I, I feel like sometimes it's important to define something for yourself, not to deviate from the... The actual definition, but just to put it in terms that that make it real to you. Mm. And so I've been trying to think about that lately. And uh, the word redeemed and redemption. Every time I come up against that one and I've been working on it for about the last month, every mm. time I come ag- come up against that one, uh, I, I hit a bit of a stalemate because, again, I know what it mm. means, but it's it's not the definition of it is not a real thing for me even though I still understand what it means and I still act accordingly. Mm. In your opinion what does redemption mean and you can and if you want to answer by what does redemption look like and you already have a little bit mm. um what would what would you say? Um I think and and that's an in, it's
1: an interesting way that you set that up because there's a lot of things I think in our faith that we take uh, just by rote that we just accept and we automatically know what they mean. And there are other things that uh, that I think all Christians have certain areas of our faith or aspects of our faith that we have to talk ourselves into mm-hmm. and things that we have to, uh, like the way you put it, that we have to define for ourselves. For me, uh, redemption probably means, and this is not going to be nearly as as soundbite quotable as I would love it to be, but I think redemption just means taking um, all that is worth nothing in you and and making it worth something in Mm -hmm. some capacity um that redemption in the idea of like you you take something that's valueless and make it valuable Mm -hmm. um that something which has no um worth or or uh it serves no purpose it performs no function and then making it cherished or making it uh somehow seem Uh, very uh, prized Mm -hmm. that that to me is is redemption it's also the idea that something which is um, negative uh, something which is horrific or horrendous um, that there could still in that moment be something good Mm -hmm. that that comes from it I think uh, I'm going to steal uh, something and I'm, I don't know it well enough to quote it, but I'm going to steal an idea from a Frederick Beekner book. Um, there's this idea that uh, I forget which book of his it was, but I remember the the concept um, that uh, people think people would say about humanity that that, that they're just full of crap. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, in the text of the Frederick Beekner word is not that word, but um, that that we're just garbage. That we're that yeah. we're nonsense. Um, that we're just crap. Um, but what they forget is that in nature, uh, that is largely what fuels growth. Hmm. Um, and and it can seem kind of silly when you think about it in that capacity, but it's like out of all of that crap is what grows the the flowers. And that's what grows the sometimes the crops. And yeah. And it's like that to me is redemption, is that there's all this waste. And yet that waste can somehow be. Uh, used in the right capacity to fuel life and rebirth and regrowth. Um, It's a very, very long definition to your question of, of, or, you know, what is, what does redemption look like to me? If I were to just put it in a button after talking through it for a minute or two, um, I would say redemption is the fact that sometimes from, from pure crap, uh, life can grow. And, and that's, that to me is what, redemption means is that there, there doesn't have to be any value in it for value to come forth from
0: it. So in a way, uh, and this is okay. So the word redemption or redeem, you don't hear it very often outside of spiritual context, except maybe this, which is redeeming a coupon. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And, and it's, I mean, it it fits exactly with what you're talking about, which Mm. is you have this piece of paper that is, Valuable only in so far as you can give it to someone else, and then you get the thing that is actually valuable. Right. The thing, the the piece of paper itself has no actual worth.
1: Hmm.
0: Um. Until you trade it in, you redeem it, and thus you you basically establish the coupon itself as being valuable because you've gotten the thing. Right. That was that you were always meant to get. Mm. Um. So yeah, it's in that way, like we as people, when we are redeemed, we are, you know, it's, I I don't like to be one of those people who talks about how, um, it's like, oh, you know how we're, we, we are just the worst. We're just crap. Um, mm-hmm. I don't like to, oh, it's not that I don't believe it. Uh, <laughs> I just don't like to overemphasize it, uh, mm-hmm. just because you never quite know what someone will latch on to in a negative way. Right. Um, I don't think we are valueless. Um, we are value. We are valuable because God values us. Mm. That doesn't mean we're on the right path and it doesn't mean we're doing the right things. Yeah. Um, we are naturally fallen and headed down the wrong path, but that doesn't mean we don't have potential and it doesn't mean we are irredeemable. Right. When we, and that's the thing is, and I think this is a a, a concept that I'm mostly familiar with through CS Lewis When something is redeemed, it is, it's a retroactive experience Hmm. because not only are they valuable from then on, but the act of redeeming means that they always were because they were headed in that direction. Right. To use the coupon analogy, like a piece of paper was not, it was not valuable. It's only potentially valuable. And then, but once you get the thing, then the minute you got that coupon, it was valuable. Right. And so, um, so yeah, in that, so I wanted to, you know, we talked about grace and we talked about redemption. In fact, redemption is a thing that is brought up, uh, on the movie poster actually, uh, of the, apostle. Oh yes, yes. Um, it talks about all these things and then towards redemption, mm-hmm. um, that the guy has, the character has finally, and that's the thing in a way he's, he was redeemed the whole time in a spiritual sense, but you see that he may not have been doing that much good in the world, hmm. or at least not. Recently, um, yeah. and it was more about self-aggrandizing. But even then, God, I think, uses him. Yeah. Um, as we see from the tent revivals and stuff like that, and Certainly. so, uh, so the film winds up being s- about so many spiritual concepts, about redemption, about the importance of grace and the role that it plays, and the idea that God can still use deeply flawed people. Mm-hmm because frankly, what choice does he have? I mean, you can't use any, he used, there was one perfect person and he used him pretty well. Um, it's a, it's a reference to Jesus, by the way, everybody. Um, but the rest of the time, like it doesn't matter how actively someone might be working against God. God can still use that uh, as evidenced by any number of people in the Bible. And so, um, so I feel like we can probably wrap it up, uh, listeners. I don't know why you'd be listening this far if you had not seen the film, <laughs> but if you haven't, go and watch it. I know we've spoiled it, but who cares? It's not that. It's not the Sixth Sense, you know. Yeah, it's a character piece, and you know, eventually he's going to uh, that. The law is eventually going to catch up with him. Certainly, but um, but it is a wonderful film for any number of reasons. People tend to talk about it primarily as as a function of Robert Duvall's performance and sure it is amazing. Yeah. But it's amazing for so many other reasons. His performance winds up being the film in microcosm, which is taking a character seriously by just approaching him as he is. Mm-hmm. Not as we think he might be or as we wish he was, but as he actually is, uh, warts and all. Yeah. Um and that's the whole movie. Mhm. So, uh yeah, I was very excited when you suggested it because it's a film that I, I don't think about enough. Hmm. Um, and it really is a triumph in what it is trying to do. Um, and so if you haven't seen it, seek it out. It is absolutely worth your time. It is on the longish side for a character piece because it's like two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. But I never, ever care because I love spending time with these characters. Even the, even the main character who's kind of a jerk. Sometimes I love spending time with that performance and all the peripheral characters as well. It's just it, in a way it's, it's going to sound strange. It creates a world I want to live in. Mm. And it incidentally, one that I probably could live in if I just moved to one, uh, to a small town. (laughs) Yeah. To move to Louisiana. But, uh, the humanity doesn't do it for me, but, um, (laughs) I've actually been uh read. If you look around, you'll see that uh, the Lord of the Rings movies are scattered about oh, because uh, I've, I've had them on while I've been working and I find myself thinking like, man, I wish I lived in Hobbiton. <laughs> uh, now I went and visited Hobbiton when I went to New Zealand and it was delightful. But, um, but yeah, this movie creates a world as lived in and real just as much as Peter Jackson's mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. Um, And it just, and I, I, that's, uh, that doesn't sound like an achievement because of course he didn't build any grand sets or there's no CGI. It's not a fantasy film, but when you think about it, it's pretty rare for, for a movie to really establish a sense of place. Even if it Mm -hmm. does take place in our reality, it doesn't happen very often, right? but this movie really does. And so it's a film like you, that I feel like I can walk around in Mm -hmm. and that I want to, I want to go to this church.
1: Yeah, yeah. Even
0: though I don't consider myself, well, I don't consider myself uh, uh, Pentecostal by any stretch. I'm right. uh, usually pretty reserved when I'm at church. <laughs> um, but sincerity and passion is still there, yeah. and uh, and that's what I find myself responding to.
1: There's i so, I'll just say this. There's an invitation to, I would say, to the whole film, but to yeah. that specific church dynamic. There's an invitation of like, hey come in there's a welcoming sense absolutely. to it and i think that's true of the like what you're saying of the characters of him uh as a main character and the, just the whole film is very welcoming it, in, it invites you into what it's displaying and and
0: rewards you accordingly for coming in absolutely and the, and i'll go back to that uh that woman is she is going to church for the first time in a while and she's just like we're gonna go praise the lord and she's just so excited Mm-hmm. And I and I look at that and I think, man, I feel like I don't get that excited. Hmm. And I don't think this is a function of Pentecostal. It's a function of a character who hasn't gotten this in a while hmm. and now has it and is yeah. excited. And so when I think about the fact that I have a church, I, I have any number of churches I can go to, and I have christian fellowship with other people and then of course i have the bible and i have prayer like i have access to god at any time and this is a film that celebrates the whose characters celebrate that and the film doesn't condemn them for it or or isn't suspicious of them for it it loves them for it and that's why i feel like the apostle might be one of the best christian films i've ever seen that has absolutely no ambition to be a christian film (laughs) it merely has the ambition to take these characters seriously yeah um and not use them as Christian films tend to do. Right. So, okay. We will end there. Boy, oh boy. What a fun discussion. Thank you, Reed so much for suggesting this film and thank you for being here. Yeah. Uh, are you available on Twitter anywhere or, or online in general? Yeah. Um,
1: on Twitter, just at Reed Lackey. Um, I, I'm starting to tweet, a little bit more mm-hmm. um and uh but yeah just at reed lackey um and uh i'm around every once in a while on facebook as well oh. um but uh but yeah you can find
0: me on twitter uh at reed lackey and uh yeah and reed is uh prolific over at morethanonelesson.com he's been on the show a few times uh he's written for us regularly uh you can read uh, You can read some recent reviews of movies you haven't heard of. Uh, Reed has kind of been my go-to guy uh, to write about Christian films that I unfortunately do not have the time to watch, um, but still feel like uh, I would like Someone on the site to weigh in on, so I give them to read, and then he reviews them. <laughs> so, thank you, Reed, for that. You are always welcome to write about something else. You re- you recently wrote about uh, Lost, a very in depth article yeah, about Lost, yeah. and uh, and uh, that that was very interesting to read. So, uh, all right. As far as you guys go, you can uh, find us at morethanonelesson dot com and uh, listen to our various minisodes and uh, and episodes and that sort of thing. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at uh, sorry that's at more lessons. And then you can find Josh at the Josh Long. You can uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, I would prefer that. I keep saying I'm going to shut down the Facebook group, but I keep forgetting to. Uh, but I'm going to do it soon. So you better like us on Facebook as soon as you can. And I think that is about it. Reed, thank you so much for being here. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Tyler. And thank you guys for listening. And we'll get you next time. Bye.